0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Marina Benjamin. Marina is a writer and senior editor at Eon Magazine, and she joined me to talk about her latest book in depth. It's called A Little Give, The Unsung, Unseen, Undone Work of Women. Marina speaks about her interlinked set of essays and verse, where she examines her own life and the tasks that were once termed women's work. From cooking and cleaning to caring for an ageing relative, Marina talks about this kind of unsung and invisible caring work, its implications for Marina's life, for women's lives, for feminism, and also for men. She talks about how patriarchy suffocates both men and women. And it is my true delight and pleasure to welcome onto this show a writer whose writing I have long admired and appreciated, and that is Marina Benjamin. Marina is a writer, she's a senior editor for Eon Magazine, which many listening might be familiar with being an online platform of brilliant writing. And she's also the author of A Little Give The Unsung, Unseen, Undone Work of Women. And this book is the third book in a memoir trilogy that explores midlife. It is truly hard to categorize from my perspective, but it certainly covers a whole range of interconnected issues and ideas surrounding class, gender inequality, the way patriarchy fells both men and women and also brings in Marina's background and her Iraqi Jewish heritage and family. So there's a lot to discover and to chat about today, and it's my true pleasure to welcome Marina onto the program for the first time. Hi there, Marina, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Amy. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I am a big fan of your writing. Interestingly, my introduction to your writing was through your book, Insomnia, when I was experiencing insomnia a while ago, I was listening to your audiobook of insomnia and it actually provided a lot of not only comfort, but understanding of something that I was grappling with at the time. So I feel really kind of connected to your words now that we're speaking today. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. I'm really excited to speak about this new book, which is really fantastic. And it also, I guess it, the structure of it seems like essays that are interlinked, but also kind of some poetry there as well. And it's um, really, really delightful to read, but also thought-provoking because it's something that I guess we deal with in our everyday lives as women. We think about these menial tasks and also caring responsibilities that we have But we don't often, I guess, get the time and space to reflect on it the way that you have done so beautifully for us. And I think that's what I got so much out of was to try and make meaning and understanding from my own kind of feelings towards cleaning and all of that uh, emotional and physical labor that's expected of women. I was so interested to see in the acknowledgements page that this book seemed to germinate from a conversation that you had with Keridwen Dovey, who is also a former guest on this show. What a brilliant woman she is. Could you tell us a little bit about how this book came into the world?
1: Uh, Yes, of course. I'm indebted to Keridwin, and I and I say so in the introductions. Um, I was fortunate enough to be invited to a Sydney Writers' Festival in 2019, so just before the pandemic, to talk about insomnia. And on one lunchtime between sessions, I had lunch with Keridwin, and she said, you know what, I'd really like to see you write on housework. And um, I, I sort of gulped, um, not really knowing what to say, because... I had long been interested in housework and I'd been searching, I think, for a long time about how I would approach it. I had secret files on my computer laptop, which I'd, (laughs) under the title sex work, um, (laughs) which was a sort of private joke, where I've been exploring various aspects of housework and trying to find the right voice, really, to get into it, because... I didn't want to write a kind of arm's length political approach to housework. There's a lot of writing like that. I've read a lot of it. It's very interesting, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. I really wanted to kind of turn the subject inside out and really write from a kind of intensely present psychological point of view. And I wanted to write, I suppose, again, in the manner of the middle pause and insomnia, from a first person perspective. So kind of down in the trenches with it, really. And then from that material kind of grit, if you like, the reality of doing housework, of being in that kind of put upon place of continually having to overextend yourself in the caring role that falls on so many women's shoulders, to then spin out from that into kind of wider thoughts about You know, what do you think about, in fact, when you're cleaning the kitchen floor? You know, what's on your mind when your hand's down the toilet pan? It interested me and, and it tied into a broader interest, I think, I have with dailiness with the idea of kind of writing about those things that are often beneath notice that people take for granted. Those are the things that interest me. And I think there's a poetry in writing about those things. So, yes, I was looking to combine that kind of, unlikely romanticised, kind of quite poetic approach, quite internalised and psychological with the most mundane of activities, but also not to forget that political layer, that kind of, you know, is this what women's lives have come to? And why do we have such trouble not doing it? To what extent can we farm it out? Um, do we give this work to other women to do? And if we do, are we exploiting them? Um, do we not do it? Do we refuse to do it? Do we get our menfolk to do it? Do we, you know, it, it just, its it was the necessity, the the obdurate presence of housework, the fact that it has to get done that I thought was such an interesting thing to, to broach.
0: Absolutely. You do feel like you're plunged into your world straight away as a reader because you're talking about the actual act of cleaning and it's very hard cleaning. It seems like there was a lot to do for your auntie when you were cleaning her kitchen and there was a lot of grime and, you, you know, you're on the ground and you're, it, it, you know, I can feel like I'm in your mind when you're on the ground, you know, doing this work and reflecting on it. And one of the most poignant parts of that scene in the book is when you talk about Elise coming over to you and saying, oh, my God, a fairy has come and made magic And the way that you say that essentially it was a clever thing to say, you say, she means that I have not abased myself by doing menial work, work that she understands to be beneath me and also beneath her since she never stoops to do it. The line between cleaner and carer being a defining demarcation. Instead, my work is fairy dust and glitter, a wand waved rather than a demeaning labour. I am a benevolent sprite. And I guess that really brought it home to me, the way that we talk about cleaning and the way that we try and, I don't know, make it okay or make the the person who's done all of that work feel better for doing it. Could you expand a bit more on those reflections you had about the interactions you have with others around the cleaning work that you were doing and you know the caring especially of even your mother as well you know those in- human interactions and the tensions that arise or can arise when you're the one putting in a lot of this work that that you don't like as you say it's not something
1: that you want to do i should tell your listeners that the context of that scene that you describe yes i start right in the action and i, I sort of i suppose i learned that from um from drama really where you know there is often a a way of ambushing your readers by starting as late as possible into the action. So there's no backstory. You're just right in there in the, the misery of cleaning. And the context there really was that um, I'd gone with my mother to, to visit my aunt who was suffering from dementia. And the reality of her situation dawned on me in that moment when I was standing in her kitchen. I don't want to give too much away, but it was clear that she wasn't able to look after herself or to care for her house. And so I did it for her. I did that cleaning work that nobody else was doing. And I did it as a labor of love. And yet, when you're sort of knee deep in grime, and it was a very particularly filthy kitchen, I have to say, there is no getting around the abasement of it. You know, the smells that are offensive, the grime that gets onto you, the sweat, the grease, the, you know, it's just, it's not nice work. Nobody could could make it into something nice or pleasant. And so that interaction that you read out from with Elise takes on more interest because, um, of course, she's the woman that we hired to look after my aunt. And yet I was doing the menial work that she wasn't doing. It wasn't that I expected her to do it. That was not the role we hired her into. But for her to acknowledge that I was doing that work would be to acknowledge my abasement. And as the, as the person who was hired by us, that becomes a very difficult thing to acknowledge because it's a kind of unspoken interaction between women, you know, whose role is to do what, you know, traditionally, and I think I go on to say this in that chapter, you know, traditionally, uh, women of a certain class would hire others to do this demeaning work because they didn't want to do it themselves. And there I was doing it. So Elise's statement, her her fairy, the fairies come and made magic, was a way of her circumventing having to acknowledge the fact that I had actually got down on my knees and got soiled and dirty doing this work. And what I like about that is, is it's a very blunt confrontation with its inescapability. You know, there is this material work that has to be done and it is a problem for feminists about who does it. And under what conditions. And I was interested in where that transactional dimension, if you like, of housework meets the emotional dimension, which is the love and the duty of care that we want to extend to our intimates, to the people who raised us and who we raise, and those threads, those generational threads that connect women. And you mentioned at the end there the tensions that are inherent in that care. And I wanted really to bring that out, to, to really paint a realistic portrait of the unlikability, the abasement, the um, the difficulties of doing this care work. You want to be selfless, but it's not easy to erase your own life in order to inhabit this role of carer. Nobody comes off well in the essay that where I focus specifically on caring for my aging mother she does not come off well and I do not come off well. And I think that, again, is also inherent in the interaction. The more you need care, the more selfish you become, the more you give care, you know, the more resentful you become. And I really wanted to kind of um, explore the complexity of emotions in that situation.
0: One particular page that got me in as well straight away when I was um, flicking through it at the start when I first got it in the mail, there was a, a kind of poem that I read that I really thought narrowed in on some of these what are seemingly feminist and political issues but as you are, you're drawing it into the personal and you say, I do not enjoy this work. I am not one of those women who buys the line that housework is a Zen activity, a doorway into contemplative absence, a means of zoning out. Whenever I get obsessive about it, which I do, I feel as if I am reverting to type, my mother's type, the type of woman valued by patriarchy. An economy of care is in play here, though not everyone is a player. It does not feature on the stock market or have any recognised public value, yet care can be bought and sold and traded to a third party. Who receives care? Who offers it? And at what price? These are vital questions for any woman and it seemed to encapsulate so much of what this book is about. I wanted to reflect on some of these issues and the way that you have brought them out because a lot of this is threaded through the book. We have a a reference to Simone de Beauvoir's writing and the way that she views housework and cooking as well. And so you do reference some of the second wave feminists and philosophers and thinkers and the way that they have also grappled with the idea of feminism and quote-unquote women's work. Could you talk to me about how you were thinking about those intellectual ideas, you know, those political and philosophical ideas and how they've come back to you in the personal. How did you, I guess, gather these inspiration sources and and other thinkers and bring them into your work?
1: I mean, I think I said earlier that I didn't want to do a sort of straightforward feminist discussion. And in the end, perhaps some of the most complicated of the ideas are find expression in that poem that you read from or that verse section that you read from. And I honestly couldn't find another way I could have written that in prose, but it just it just didn't seem to have the directness that the verse did. So I left it in there. Um, So, yes, there's a certain amount of experiment with form. In some of the essays, I've put my more theoretical or philosophical considerations in, in small columns down the middle of the page as a kind of kind of cultural excursus. So without having to footnote or reference something to just, as it were, give you a little bit of an aside that kind of deepens the discussion into something that kind of perhaps leans on the reading that underpins the thinking behind this book. So in the chapter on cleaning, for example, I'm very interested in in the kind of the ways in which uh, women's work has been rendered invisible, and deliberately so. Um, It's been made invisible because it is not acknowledged as work. And we think of work as something you go and do and get paid for and get recognised for as a waged labourer. So in that sense, I was very interested in the political debates that came up in um, second wave feminism around the wages for housework issue, Mm. which is let's make this thing that women do, that spend time on, that they don't get remunerated for, let's make it a political issue because it takes their time and it drains their energy and it stops them from participating in the workforce and yet nobody else does it. And when women, ironically, when women, most women who work outside of the house, I mean, in terms of statistics, are working in those low-paid, unrecognized, low-status industries, often around domestic labor or its industrial equivalent, cleaning, Mm. cooking, um, service industries, caring. That political debate obviously was informing me. You mentioned Simone de Beauvoir, I leave her really to the end of the book because there's a lot of philosophical meat on her reflections on housework and i wanted to engage with them in a very kind of serious way the other thing of course that was in the back of my mind was the deluded ideas that i think quote unquote homemakers have when it comes to housework which is just to flip the value Rather than take issue with the, with patriarchy to flip the value, the low the low value that is placed on housework into something kind of rather wonderful, and say, well, we're domestic goddesses, you know, we we're magical whizzes around the house. We have these wonderful skills, that, um, magical invisible skills that make us kind of domestic queens of the domestic sphere. And again, I understand where that's coming from politically. It doesn't sit comfortably personally with me. It's not a mantle I want to wear, but but it was something I was engaging with as I wrote. So yes, there was a kind of constellation of theoretical positions that have emerged through feminist debates over the past century that I was very aware of as I was writing.
0: I also enjoyed when you inserted those cultural and pop cultural, in some cases, references like the bewitched section. It was obviously really relatable because so many people have watched Bewitched, but seeing that subtext that you draw out of what is actually truly happening there and, you know, the fact that the husband is aware of this woman's powers, she's a witch, but she's meant to hide her powers and, you know, he gets the benefit of, of what she does and also that she has to hide the fact that she doesn't do the housework, you know, that she just wiggles her nose and Bam, it's all finished at the end of the day. That also, you know, that tension there from a period that we would think of as culturally long ago, it still feels very recent.
1: Yes. I mean, in some ways, you know, it's um it's a kind of time warped anomaly bewitched because even at the time then it was broadcast, you know, second wave feminism was was, you know, up and raring. And so it was an anachronism even in its own day. But I I like to think that there was a kind of tongue in cheek message in it, because of course what the, what the thing is saying is that it's um, bewitched. The message there seems to be that you know every woman is expected to execute housework magically. You know here's what's really going on for all women, and I think as I say in the in the, in the book, you know the conceit of that, the way in which the marriage pact works between the witchy woman who, who magics the housework and the mortal man who is a bit of a doofus and who just has a kind of, you know, ordinary job that he, you know, there he goes out, leaves the house every day in his briefcase and with his briefcase and then comes back and smooches his wife. There's this, um, this idea that uh, for that marriage to work, her powers have to go unremarked. He cannot countenance a woman being more competent than him. And so the powers that she exerts have to be magicked away.
0: I was thinking also about a topic that you just referenced a bit earlier when you were talking about women hiring help in the home, for example, to help maybe with cleaning or with caring. And, of course, you write about Carlotta, who you had employed to help clean your house and, you know, talked of of what so many people do, which is to do a pre-clean before the cleaner comes and then you would be in her presence feeling like you needed to work and then you were, I guess, yeah, exploring that impulse and the reason why you felt like you needed to work and also how the dynamic was shifting when you suddenly weren't working around Carlotta. And I just loved that and the way that you write about it. Some of the questions that you raise after that example are, does it not also make me part of the oppressive economy that underfunds feminised labour? Does it not leave me compromised? that is largely women alone who are forced to grapple with these questions, is yet another aspect of patriarchy. Men don't even ask themselves these questions. They just hire people to clean for them and get on with their lives. I wondered if you could expand a little bit more on your thoughts there, especially around that section of the book.
1: I think that every woman who hires somebody to clean their house cannot help but identify with the woman who's doing the cleaning. They are so aware that the job that she is doing would traditionally have been done by them and expected of them as part of, the, of being a homemaker, a homeowner, the person who, whose job it is to just do that homework. And I find it in my own life, and I think this is true of many of us, to be a, a highly complex and difficult relationship to govern, you know, there's that middle class guilt about, well, is the work that I do more valuable than the work that she's doing? I certainly get paid more for what I do than she does for what she does. So is should I be paying her more? Should I be trying to bolster other areas of her life to give her more options in life? Should I actually try and get her to disengage from, from this kind of work and, and help her into, into something else? And with Carlotta, all those things came into play. It was out of guilt that I actually started asking her to come less frequently because I found us both being present in the house to be, to be a particularly difficult situation. And I know many women, actually, who would rather be absent when somebody's cleaning their house because they can't confront that situation. And I, in fact, did help her try and get other work, which would be more rewarding for her. <laughs> um, and, you know, then they were... The dynamics around being in the same space together, what should I be doing if she's cleaning? Should I be actually doing the higher status work? What does that look like to her? Does that look like I'm kind of lording it over her, which is what I didn't want to look like? Or should I be pretending that I'm a woman of leisure or not pretending? But I I think I mentioned an instance where I was actually ill one day and this was something she found easier to deal with because then she was inhabiting the role of cleaner and carer, because I couldn't do it, not because I wouldn't do it. It's a minefield and I wanted to try to write that fully aware of the politics of the situation but kind of keeping the politics in the background as it were. It also brings
0: me to some of the other parts of the book which are a little bit different to what we've just been talking about but still are bringing in similar themes. And I've um, double underlined a section here which says that I feel nothing but heartache now when I think of all the clever, angry, dissatisfied women who stalked the landscape of my youth, weighed down with housework they seethed with resentment, which having no outlet, snapped back into spite. You could practically see its barbs shooting out of their eyes, the evil eyes whose nefarious glare my cultural forebears sought to elude by concealing their joys, lying about their successes, and keeping their dreams to themselves that just hits you when you read it. I just really would love to hear more about your childhood and the cultural background you were coming from with your family, your parents, you talk about a lot in this book. And, you know, those women that you've observed growing up and that that you didn't want to be like, that you were really trying very hard not to be like.
1: Yes, I know the situation um, that I grew up in is, is pretty conservative and fairly extreme compared to most people in kind of liberal Western countries. But actually, it suited me very well in a book like this because I did literally grow up in a culture in which women were kind of in a quite Victorian way, expected to be the mistresses of their house, not to work outside the home, to defer to men and so forth. And the passage that you read, explores the kind of very deleterious consequences of that on the psyches of the women who had to live that compromise. And it was a compromise for them. And these were, as I say, clever, angry women. <laughs> and, and where did those emotions go? Well, they turned in on each other. I mean, that was the most, the tragedy of it is these women started policing each other with these sort of awful expectations about whose house was better than the others, who had more money, whose house was cleaner, whose children were prettier. I mean, it was just mindless, awful, trivial stuff that, that these trapped women, the lives they were living. And this is the culture in which my mother came from. To her credit, you know, she only tried to impose it on me in a fairly minimal way <laughs> because I think her inner escapist fantasies were transferred onto me. Um and so she was very supportive of my, although also fearful of my efforts to escape that cultural background, because she didn't understand what lay on the other side. She had never experienced the kind of freedom that working women experience, or career women, or professional women experience. And so, you know, there was an ignorance and a fear about that, and it threatened her identity, of course. But nor did she want me to be among that those group of repressed, depressed. Women who surrounded her.
0: Yeah. And I wonder how your father felt as well, because you write about him in a way that's also really interesting. You know, you get to know him as this very flamboyant, charismatic, creative man. And as you say, in a way, he's pushing up against a patriarchy and standards of masculinity. And he experiences that in his own social group of quote unquote male friends and feeling like he has to engage in talk about politics and hang out with the other guys what did he have as his expectations or vision for you and your life and was that different to your mother
1: what I really liked about bringing my father in and the reason I spent so much time on him in this book is that patriarchy failed him as a man and this is something also that we don't talk about just in the way that we don't talk about the ardors of housework or the realities, the material realities of housework, we often don't talk about the way in which patriarchy fails men. So my mother was pinched in this uncomfortable position of kind of being a, a bright, talented woman with no opportunities. My father was pinched in an equally awkward position of being a flamboyant creative and very possibly gay man who was, you know, trapped in this kind of expectation of being the man of the house. And he took every opportunity in private to not be that, to not play that role. Although it took me many, many years and obviously adulthood and lots of retrospective understanding to kind of recognize his psyche and what he was going through. Even as a child, I could see that he was very awkward in the company of men and they were very awkward around him. And so I wanted to highlight the costs of this uh, traditional gender dynamics for men as well as women. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it was very useful. The other aspect of my father that, that comes into this book was the fact that he was a fashion designer. He was a couturier. He made beautiful things, and so he was actually had a more of an intrinsic engagement with ideas around femininity than my than my mother did. And so, ironically, a lot of my expectations about what it meant to be a woman in the world came from him and so my particular the reason I put so much about my particular family circumstances in there is they actually give me a theoretical lens with which to to talk about housework and femininity and care work and gender roles and to do it in a narrative way where I can tell stories about what it was like to learn about these roles growing up in a western country with a with a more conservative background and one of the lines in that
0: section which you've kind of referenced in a way you say that patriarchy it seems could fell us both that sense as you've already just referenced that both men and women are suffocated by patriarchy in so many different ways and their identities are changed or hidden or you know you're forced to shapeshift uh, in order to fit into social expectations but he certainly does come through as a really a wonderful character and someone who had excellent taste <laughs> um, and that red dress he made you sounds amazing. Let's jump into some of the other sections which are also you know, really interesting. And obviously cooking is one element of this. You talk about feeding and that's a section in the book. And you referenced a man called Richard V. Reeves from the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., I was interested in the way that he talks about relational equality and you draw out some of those issues through him. He says that those who are economically productive and successful often do not see a broken labor market, which after all continues to work for them. They see broken people making bad choices who are less worthy of respect. I guess it brings in some of these neoliberal, highly conservative views, the ways that those who might be disadvantaged are blamed for their situation. And you draw out some really interesting points. And one of the things that I really appreciated was the way that you said that it is not by caring that you create unhealthy dependencies, but by not caring and by disrespecting those who have less than you do. And you were just saying that, you know, I don't buy into this line of thinking that people are fundamentally selfish and that there's no society and only competing individuals. This very Hobbesian view of the world where everyone is kind of an adversary and you should just lift yourself up by your bootstraps. That whole section, you know, involves a soup kitchen and your reflections on those that you met through the soup kitchen. And I just wonder if you could tease out some of those issues that you've put there through Richard and his, I guess, theoretical insights, but how that's relating back to your personal memoir-esque insights, working at that soup kitchen and, and also just observing the people who were struggling around you in London.
1: Interesting that you lit on that particular section in the book, because I would say it was the most, apart from engaging with de Beauvoir at the end, it's the most overtly political section of the book. And I think that what it represents for me to have that section there is that it represents the very faulty way in which governments, particularly uh, right leaning governments, think about the care industry as a whole. They think it is about helping people who can't be helped, who can't help themselves, the kind of that there is a necessary kind of almost, um, you know, a given portion of people who are going to kind of fall off the economic train and who need picking up. And that these people are beyond respect. These people are pitiable. And I'm taking issue with this model of thinking about, about the care industry and what it means to care for people and what it means to be dependent, because we are all interdependent. And Where I brought the soup kitchen in was about kind of making fundamental connections between people who have and don't have and what that relationship is actually about. It can be made to be a a meeting of equals uh, rather than a meeting of givers and takers or dependents and providers. I wanted to strip down the political language and look at the kind of very human contact. And the fact that I was working in a soup kitchen during lockdown as well Raise the stakes on that because we weren't supposed to meet. We weren't supposed to mingle. And yet that was what I was craving during lockdown. And it was that kind of kind of very raw, grainy relationship between one person and another. What do we owe each other? What can we give one another? We are living in times of need and difficulty. How do we relate? How do the haves relate to the have-nots? And, and so, yeah, that's the most political section of the book, really, because it sets the idea of of giving in a broader political context, and I think dignifies care and caring and the work that women do in a in a in a context that's broader even than feminism. Yeah. So I felt, yeah. I mean, it's funny because in some ways, I, I think if I look at the book again, it's the chapter in a way that sort of it sticks out a little bit because it goes beyond the personal. But I felt that I needed to make some kind of broader case for care and that that I had to sort of somewhere in the book I had to lift it out of that kind of quite uh, domestic, although fraught, but still cosier, domestic, safer interior with which we're all familiar and make the bigger social case. Mm, mm. And so that's the chapter that does that. Well, it's interesting that
0: that chapter flows into caring for, in your case, your parents and the relationship between your mother and the way, as you referenced earlier, that it morphed really because of a lot of the things that you were giving up, that you were holding back from your mother, because I guess you didn't want to um, to share that part of your aspirations, what you were, your hopes were uh, when you were doing a lot of work and, and supporting her. And she was obviously, as she was getting older, having less ability to be independent, needing more support. You talk about a slide into oblivion, and you say that it happens by imperceptible degrees, that is what makes it so dangerous. What also you know, was interesting to me is this idea where you say, I have so well disguised my own labour that even my mother, its chief beneficiary, cannot see it. I have rendered it wholly invisible in one of the many exchanges in which I've tried to urge a new Julia on her, tried to tell her that I'm finding it all a bit much. She retorted, what do you even do? I can kind of see how galling it must be to have been in that situation, but then also no doubt you care deeply for your mother. And so there must be a lot of mixed emotions there. And you know, you go on to talk about a different tact that you tried later on. And that was also really quite heartbreaking to read about. So Could you talk to us a little bit more about that relationship between mother and daughter, how you were feeling at the time? And obviously you still do have many aspirations, but you you weren't necessarily sharing all of those professional interests with your mum while you were showing her that kind of care that needed to be done.
1: Yes. I suppose, again, there's always something in the background of the writing that's on the page. And in this case, I think what was in the background was this idea that I was this cultural idea that I wanted to push back against, that caring was somehow natural, a duty of care, your parents raise you, you then look after them, that there's some lovely equitable balance that goes on. And that, you know, if we're privileged enough and, um, lucky enough to have you know working lives that allow us um a little bit of leeway then you know what better thing can we do what more virtuous thing can we do than look after our parents in this way and i really wanted to push back against this kind of idea partly because like so many other of these unspoken cultural ideas they put women in impossible positions and because they're unspoken because they're a kind of taken for granted received wisdom Women are battling in a way that is almost nonverbal or pre-verbal with these expectations that they should be delivering some kind of care for their elders, but actually their material situations are impossible. So I wanted to sort of talk about trying to care for my mother from the point of view of how impossible it is, what compromises you have to make, what impossible choices you're forced to. do. Um, I mean, if you're a working woman, and you're caring for an elderly parent, you know, you can't then have the privilege of going out and seeing your friends of an evening, or, you know, you might have to choose between your children's needs and your parents needs, an impossible choice, you know, you may have to forego things that, uh, like rest, (laughs) you know, that you sorely need. And at the same time, I also wanted to enter the psyche of the person who becomes more and more dependent because that changes too they're not the kind of sweet natured beneficiary or recipient of, of care it, it doesn't it doesn't work that way they're often very miserable about the independence that they're losing and the dependent state they're entering into you know they want their autonomy they're resentful they're bitter there are levels of obviously physical care where um, you know privacy is intruded upon Uh, unwanted intimacy enters into the frame these are very fraught difficult things to withstand and one of the ways in which um, I think you end up navigating this role I think as as someone as a provider of care is that you have to efface yourself as you enter into the care relationship you know you have to understand that it's not about you you can't bring your needs and desires into that frame That it has to be a kind of purely goal-directed activity that aims at the betterment of the other person's life, even if they'll never thank you for it, even if they can't even see or recognize what it is that you're doing to help them. And I think that's often the situation that that family care is. I would say paid care is a slightly different situation, more like the paid cleaner, but in a family situation, that's often the position you find yourself in.
0: I really hope people read that particular chapter because I don't want to spoil the rest of it but I really appreciate the way you've characterized it and told told us about your your thinking behind it. I wanted to touch on a chapter where you're addressing the universality of male and male thought and words relating to men. It did make me chuckle a bit the opening part of this chapter where you were talking about scrolling through Twitter and um an American writer, Melissa Phoebos, she was complaining about language and the way maleness hides inside it, and she vowed to drop the word seminal" from her lexicon of praise because quote, "Why should formative groundbreaking things evoke semen and um these you know replies that you detail on Twitter of women you know coming up with other words that could be used, which I love, and I wish that they would actually replace seminal and we had clitoral, ovial, vulvate, luteal, lacteal, hysteral, gyneous. You also contributed bubissimo. I mean <laughs> it really was a great way to enter this discussion. Could you tell us a bit about that chapter? And, you know, you do go on to talk about your first book and the way that, you know, you had entered a, a male way of thinking as well. And I just really appreciated the way that you grappled with this particular subject because it's something I did grapple with in my 20s a lot and the way that your writing is perceived and the wish that you will be taken seriously and the driving need to to write in a male way or in a male domain that will be received by maleness.
1: I think by the time you get to that chapter in the book, you know, you've been so ensconced in the kind of, you know, high pressure pressure fat that is kind of the (laughs) women's domestic work and the the resentments and the you know the the abasements that that entails but you know you're looking for the escape valve and in a way that chapter was sort of saying I think for a lot of women that escape valve has always been to kind of jump take a running leap into a male world (laughs) where all that (laughs) stuff simply doesn't weigh you down. So that chapter was really about the delusions of uh, of jumping into that world because you're never accepted as a woman anyway. You're no. always you're always going to be slapped down or underpaid or you know not given the promotion or whatever. So it's a false escape. But I think why I started with the I mean, it was quite a lighthearted way to start, but I was uh, it does make the very serious point that maleness does hide itself in our cultural uh, framework as the way things simply are, as the given. And you have to become very conscious of that in order to push back against it. So yes, I think that chapter was looking at how even language, even the language that we, we try and address our feminist issues in is 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 obscured and occluded with, um, with cluttered, if you like, with maleness um, and how difficult mm. it is to find a way to speak about women's issues. Um, and so, yes, I mean, that, you know, that chapter is informed by LNCCU and the idea of an écriture feminine and you know how is it that women should speak And I'm also interested in in Audre Lorde in that chapter, who says that it's very interesting to identify and it's very important that women identify who we're speaking to and where we're speaking from. Because those are the parameters in which 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 home and house um, the issues that are important to us, um, rather than appealing to the kind of the patriarchal uh, law giving framework structuring uh, language that surrounds us and which simply wants to slap it down. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so it was about trying to find and then raise up a different kind of way of speaking that is embedded, if you like, grounded in femaleness. And then of course that too raises problems for feminism because what does it mean to be female? Um, how do we avoid a kind of essentialist femaleness? What are we grounding this female language in? So, yeah, those are the things that I was interested in exploring in that chapter.
0: A topic or just an idea I wanted to conclude this whole conversation with because I felt like it gets to the crux of the sacrifices that women are making now and it's a sacrifice that you really confronted with a writer friend you have who you say has since become very famous And they told you that you lose a book for every child and you say that her delivery was coy for surely you cannot weigh volumes of printed paper against living bundles of flesh and blood, but her meaning was sincere. And you were talking about those impossible trade-offs. I think that is something that so many women would have grappled with listening right now. It's something that I think about and i just wanted to conclude on that and your reflections on how you manage to i don't know reconcile yourself with the trade offs that you make as a mother as a carer as a partner etc what you know how do you reflect on those trade offs
1: it's interesting that you use the word reconcile because I, I suppose in a way I was thinking you can't reconcile mm. them and that maybe our efforts, the efforts that we expend in trying to make a smooth narrative about the impossible choices or the contradictions in our lives are not helpful to us. And so one of the things that I'm arguing for is to accept the contradictions, embrace the friction. Our lives aren't, they don't fit along a single narrative because we're women. (laughs) We are trying to fit into this world that hasn't been made for us. Um, And, you know, of course, women want to create and they want to achieve. But I suppose a lot of what I'm writing about in this book is the inescapability of the other side of our lives, the bits that we want to run away from, the, the grunt work, the housework, the stuff that other people rely on us for and the roles that we take on as carers are things that we, we ignore at our peril because they erase aspects of our humanity and that if we can kind of do them and embrace the fiction and find some kind of self-acceptance, then that might be a better way forward than trying to live as political beings in the world. So live as humans first and then live as political beings.
0: What an amazing finish to a great conversation. I've just been so fascinated by everything you've been saying, Marina, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this book. I loved every word of it.
1: Thank you,
0: Amy. Yeah, I really appreciate the time that you've taken and the care you've taken to really consider so many different topics and bring it together in such a coherent and cohesive way. So thank you so much, Marina, and I do hope that people pick up this book, which is available now in Australia. It's called A Little Give, The Unsung, Unseen, Undone Work of Women, and it's out through Scribe Publications. Thank you so much, Marina Benjamin, for your time today. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.